I believe that uh, when we walk in intimacy with the Lord, our whole life changes. Your past, your present, your addictions, your struggles, the things that people have done to you, the way people have abandoned you or labeled you, the things that you have partnered with in your heart and mind, I don't care what they are. Only He has the authority to tell you who you are. We have to ask Holy Spirit to download His heart to our heart. We have to be people who raise their hands and say, I'm here, this is my city, this is my region, it's not somebody else's problem. wasn't very emphatic this morning, so we're going to... Hey, y'all. Good morning. There it is. Good morning. I, uh, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. As Ryan said, I do get to travel and speak, but my favorite place to be and to speak is here. I love being with my family because, you know, you have to love me. So um, <laughs> sometimes that's a task. You're stuck with me, you know. So it's, it's, it might be one of those messages this morning where you have to remind yourself of that. So anyway, um, before I get into my message, I want to talk with you. I want to, for those of you who don't know me, I want to explain a little bit of my character to you. Um, a couple weeks, maybe a month or so back, uh, my wife and I were at the children's ministry counter trying to help do something, and uh, one of one of the my favorite people around here, a guy by the name of Ryan Westfall, was observing me, and he made a comment about my behavior and my actions. And he said I was being dramatic. <laughs> yeah, so dramatic. Like, that's drama with Drew, dramatic. My wife looked at him and got in the most serious face and said, how is it we have never come up with that before? <laughs> like, that word before. And I wanted a T-shirt that was, like, hashtag dramatic just to, you know, that. Because I, I just want to explain to you something if you don't know about me. I'm a little dramatic. I'm a little colorful, a little emphatic. Uh, if you're with me in a restaurant, and I get a plate of food that I like, you're going to experience something like this. Oh, so good! You know, it's like, oh, so good, we have to eat it, you know. And then my wife will say, there is no salad, but that's, good. that's that good, Drew. Like, calm down. Like, oh, but it's so good! You know, it's the best thing ever. You know, uh, I will often talk about people in my life. I'll introduce them. They're, like, they're my favorite. And my wife will say, you have 30 favorites. And I said, I do, and it's all true. They're all my favorite. I love them all equally, and, and, but not, but I do. Like, I'm very emphatic, and I'm very big, and color, I mean, well, you know, I'm very, very, very emphatic with the things that I say and the way that I communicate. That's part of who I am. And I will say this, that as an individual who is like that, um, there have been a tendency of some people in my life to criticize that attribute. I know it's far too, I mean, who would ever do that? Because all this is so great all the time. Um, but I know that growing up, I had a feeling, uh, a general feeling over me that, that said that this was not really all that acceptable. Like that my bigness and my drama and my, my colorful way of expressing and living was needed to be reduced a bit. And I remember being involved in a church environment that really kind of began to view that as kind of a flaw. And I remember being told that I needed to act more Christ-like. In, in my external expression because Christ was serious and solemn. <laughs> and Christ did not exaggerate. Christ is literal, black and white, literal. Christ is always stoic. And he always said things like this. You know, it's just, uh, you, you almost 
sense that when you see some of those older movies that depict Jesus where it's like, I am walking into things and there is chaos, but I am calm. Peace, be still and everywhere, you know, and, and it's just like this stoic Jesus. And I looked at my, I mean, I was told many times that my personality and my, my bigness was needing to be tempered down by the hammer of discipleship, you know, and, and maybe some of you might relate where maybe some of your personality traits get, you know, denigrated down. But um, I remember studying the word, and I love that we're in contextual revolution, and one of the, the contexts that we are talking about today literally focuses on the literary context. And a particular literary device that Jesus used beautifully, and that, and I mentioned it in a previous message before, but it's all about this today, hyperbole. And hyperbole is exaggeration, it's bigness, it's grandiosity, it's, it's this big expression. And Jesus did it all the time. All the time. Um, Jesus was way more dramatic than I think that if we look at the scriptures literally in the black and white of the pages of scripture, he's way more dramatic than we would want, than so often we'd be really comfortable with. And so today as we talk about this, I'm, I want to explain this device of hyperbole so that we can get it, so that when we get into the passage that we're actually going to talk about, we can begin to examine this from a correct place and understand its heart rather than what we might have been taught on this or what we might feel from it when we address it. So um, I want to say something about this. Um, hyperbole is conscious exaggeration that expresses truth in a non-literal manner. Now, I, I want to give you an example from parenting. Um, and this is really important. So I have spawned three children. And they're all girls, which means that dramatic is multiplied exponentially in my home. And one of them is reached about 11 years old, which means hormones, and which means that all that dramatic pass-down tendency is exaggerated. And I have heard things from my oldest daughter when she's come home or experienced something, and they're very sweeping statements, something along the lines of like, you know, explaining a situation at school, like, they were all laughing at me. You know, it's almost like a scene out of Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you. You know, it's just like... It's just this broad sweeping statement of they're all, they all laughed at me or everyone was doing this or everyone was doing that. And I can tell you right now that if I get stuck on the literal words that are coming out of her mouth and try to parent her through the literal words that are coming out of her mouth, I'm going to miss her heart completely. Because she's not actually saying to me that everyone in the entirety of the universe is laughing at her at that moment. She's telling me what she felt. She's telling me her experience of her heart. That the, that the truth emotionally was she felt completely rejected, completely uh, made fun of, completely vulnerable. But if I focus on the words coming out of her mouth and I say, now, now, sweetheart, everybody was not laughing at you. And I have to have a conversation with her that begins to delineate between people that were, you know, probably just not speaking up because they were afraid and peer pressure or blah, 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 blah. I'm going to miss her heart completely and I'm going to miss an opportunity to carry her heart and to care for her heart. And we do this a lot where we see the literalness and we don't see the truth of the emotion. And one of the reasons why I think that we struggle with this as a people is that we aren't very emotionally intelligent. Emotions can be scary and they can be big and they can be um, hard to discern and control and, and we get afraid of them. I counsel a lot of people and I can tell you one of the, the biggest issues that I see 
in relating with, with many people is this block of understanding how to, how to emotionally understand themselves and communicate. So it'll be like this. I'll be in a meeting with someone. I'll say, how do you feel about that? And I'll be like, oh. No, no, but what is a feeling word you can use to explain? Oh, you know, it's just like it's. So then I get out my little chart, my color of feelings chart, and I say, do you feel happy? No. Happy's over here. Let's go to the opposite end of this. Do you feel sad? Yes. Okay, good. We made progress. We can identify an emotion. And it's, I, I'm using hyperbole here. I'm exaggerating. But not that much in regard to this. Anyone who's walked with people in emotional brokenness, I mean, Lois, yes. Has, have you had this experience? Yes. Oh, yes. We know that sometimes people struggle with emotional intelligence, knowing what they're feeling, how they're feeling. And plus, big emotions can get really unsafe for people. It's like when, when someone's having a big emotion or a big statement, it can tend to infringe upon your boundaries. And you just want to be like, you go over there in your compartment, and I'll stay over here in mine, and let's just not, there's walls here. Let's keep them up. Let's keep things contained. Because emotions draw emotion out of us. When we experience big emotions, we respond to big emo with big emotions. And even if we're not external, we still feel it. Many of us who don't express a ton have a war going on inside with emotion often that when they're experiencing it all out here with the people around them, they're feeling it on the inside. They might look stoic, but it's like, don't pull back that curtain. It's ugly in there. So, you know, it's like emotions can be really, really difficult for us. So when we start looking at some of these, these uh, big emotional things in Scripture, these moments of Jesus' hyperbole, I think that one of the things that we've done is we have rightly understood that there's an exaggeration, but we get afraid of the exaggeration and we pull back. Does that make sense? I, we do that with each other, and we get uncomfortable with exaggeration and hyperbole, and we, we, try to, we try to bring it back down so that we can absorb it or understand it or respond to it. Um, like I said, hyperbole, it, it expresses an emotional truth rather than a literal truth. And this can be extremely help for us, helpful in expressing things that are deeper like conviction. You know, when we're expressing or trying to communicate a conviction, we, we use hyperbole to not express the literal length at which we would go to hold to this conviction, but the depth of our heart in it. Like when someone would say, I'd rather die than do this. Well, uh, chances are they wouldn't rather die. But they're communicating a reality that this is an impassioned and a deep conviction. And so to cross it would be really emotionally catastrophic. So we, we're beginning to understand the difference between the literal and the emotional truth, yes? Okay. So I want to bring up a couple examples of Jesus' hyperbole when he used hyperbole, give you the example of it, and these aren't the passages I'm going to preach on today, but I just want to give you these examples as context. So Luke 14.26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That seems a little rough, you know? It's like, I mean, hate your father, your, your mother, your wife, your ch I get children. Um, <laughs> when they won't go to bed, I'm on board with Jesus' statement. You, you hear me, Auden. It's like, yes, hallelujah, you know? A witness right there. But we understand that if we look at this, this doesn't make sense with Jesus' character and the other teachings that Jesus gave us. Jesus 
was communicating love all the time. He said to us, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other as I have loved you. We understand that love is at the heart of how, how Christ teaches us to interact with one another. So when this word says, if you don't hate pretty much everybody, you're not my disciple, that, that doesn't mesh with what we know about Jesus, and it disturbs our hearts because he is expressly using hyperbole to shake us out of our fog, to get us to see a emotional truth beyond the literal truth, because sometimes when we hear the truth spoken so plainly, we've gotten so dull to it that it doesn't shake our hearts anymore. So if Jesus says, follow me, I'm the most important thing in your life, yes, Jesus, you are. Hallelujah. You are the most important thing in my life. Hate everyone but me. That's a little rough, Jesus. You know, it's, it just begins to stir something in us that we have to examine. Where is our commitment to God? Where is our commitment to the Lord? It breaks us out of the monotony and the fog of the normal and shakes us into think deeper and more emotionally. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. It grabs our attention. Whenever truth is in danger of becoming a cliche, hyperbole can rescue it from indifference. J.R.R. Tolkien, who is an incredible author and instrumental in the salvation of C.S. Lewis, I love Tolkien, uh, he wrote this, that um, it, it's, it's that, that place that hyperbole rescues us from is the drab blur of triteness or familiarity. Now, I would say that many of us who've spent enough time in church, our experience of hearing people talk about sin or about discipleship or about being Christ-like has somehow slid into that drab triteness of the familiarity. Some of the things that we know to be right or wrong has slipped into that place where we get dull to what we're hearing. I know it has for me, and I'm, and I'm a preacher. So I want us to be able to look at and examine the scriptures through this literary device and understand the places where Jesus is trying to shake us out of our stupor of familiarity and drab triteness and get our hearts to engage with something new. So... How do we know if a statement is hyperbole? Well, here's some ba basic rules. One, the statement is literally impossible. Literally impossible. Another example from Scripture is Matthew 6, 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Shh. You know, you, that's impossible. That's impossible to do. We're all connected. Our, our, you know, my, this hand is it's always knowing what this hand is doing. That's an impossibility. It's an exaggeration. But he's communicating a truth, basically saying, when you give to the needy, don't make a big deal out of it. Be, be a bit more co covert. Don't make a show. You're not supposed to expose this for people to see. You're not supposed to do it for praise. You're supposed to do it in a way that is honoring people and honoring God and not seeking your own glory. So it's an exaggeration, but it, it, it makes us stop to think, wait a minute, how can I... What, how does that work? Or another exaggeration of the impossible is the camel passing through the eye of the needle. I would like to see that. <laughs> but it isn't a physical impossibility, and so you know there's an exaggeration here for a purpose. One of the other ways that we know a statement is hyperbole is that it conflicts with what Jesus says elsewhere. And like we said with uh, hate your brother, your, your sister, we know that Jesus calls us to love. He calls us into loving relationship. If Jesus is saying, hate this person, you know it shakes your foundation. You have to look at it and go, why is he saying it like this? 
we have to look at it in what Jesus says in other places. If it conflicts with the actions of Jesus elsewhere, then we know that there's some exaggeration we have to look at. If the statement conflicts with the broader teaching of Scripture, again, this is all context. That we have to look at the context of something rather than just looking at it literally. We look at it if it shakes our foundation and we don't know what it's saying. We look broader. And we see if it doesn't match, we can know that there's an exaggeration. If the statement is not always literally fulfilled in practice, which we'll get to when I get to the actual message I'm preaching on. This is all just the intro. <laughs> we will be here till two. Um, <clears throat> if the statement's literal fulfillment would not achieve the desired goal. We'll talk about that too. The statement uses a particular literary form prone to exaggeration. We, I taught on this when we talked about the Proverbs. And if we look at the Psalms, we see that where, where it is poetic language. And when, say, David says, one thing I ask, this one thing I seek. Well, first off, David asked a lot of stuff all the time. And he did not just seek one thing. He sought a lot of things. But when he says that, he's saying, this one thing is more important than all the rest. That I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we know that when there's a literary device that lends itself to exaggeration, we can know that it's exaggeration on purpose to make a point. Make sense? Make sense? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and then the statement uses all-inclusive or universal language, the all-or-nothing kind of statements that we see in Scripture. So if we know, if we see that, we can sense and we can discern that there's some hyperbole, some exaggeration going on here for a particular reason. And... Here's the thing. I'm saying all this, and I think that many of us recognize exaggeration in the scripture. So I'm not, I, I don't think that I'm talking to a group of people that, that think Jesus is literally saying some of these things when he says them. I think that we understand that there's exaggeration for the point of emphasis. Um, unless you come from an extremely legalistic background that would hold some of these things to quite literal interpretation, which is my background, um, I don't think we struggle with some of these things, saying Jesus actually wants us to hate people. I think we understand there's an exaggeration. But here's the danger that, it, that is on my heart that I want to communicate to us today. I think that in light of understanding there's exaggeration, we understand there's exaggeration, yet we miss the passion in the heart of Jesus and what he's communicating. That the very exaggeration has become dull to us. What Jesus is passionately saying, because we know it's an exaggeration, we dismiss the heart of it altogether. And I think that that's the case for a lot of us. Now, when I say that, I want to say this. I am a fan of grace. I'm a big fan of grace. And so I think often when we see commandments or things spoken of in Scripture with such passion, honestly, a lot of them come down to sin or things that are destructive or things that we're called to avoid. And I, I am saying this thinking that many times we kind of lower our feelings towards those things. I'm not saying that we should not love and appreciate and be grateful for grace. I am so grateful for grace. If there was not grace, I would not be standing here. And many of you who know my story know that to be true. But what I am saying is that we have to recapture the passion of what Jesus is saying. We have to recapture the passion and, and the emotional truth beyond the literal words so that it can guide us in discipleship and our relationship with him. Amen? We on board? Okay, so now we're actually going to get to the scripture I'm preaching on this morning. Brace yourselves. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Says this. Somewhere. I'll just read it. How, okay, there we go. 
You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But when I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And now our chipper message begins. <laughs> Number one, can we see hyperbole? Yes, if you are in any way, shape, or form doubting that there's hyperbole in the statement, let me just say emphatically, Jesus does not want you cutting off body parts. Let me just say right now that if this were literal, I would have no eyes, no hands, no feet, no tongue. I would just be love handles on a skateboard up here. That's all that would be left. That's, that's, a, that's an image, isn't it? Lord. Um, Lord have mercy. Let me also say this. Let me also say this. Um, there's hyperbole in every part of this. There's, there's exaggeration in every part of this. And so I'm, I just want to start with this because I know my audience. And I know that there are people in this room that have, that have dealt with the consequences and the pain of adultery. So that you know there's no condemnation here of former homosexuals preaching this morning. That got quiet. <laughs> so that you know there's no condemnation in Christ. And I know that there is pain in these words. There's pain in this passage. And there's a lot of really literal pain for people here. But let me say this right now. God has something great to teach us this morning. And please don't, and in anyone here who's experienced the condemnation or the pain or the consequence of sin in this area, please feel no condemnation in the fact that this is the passage today. There is no condemnation allowed in this room. Grace, the grace of God has covered every, every mistake we could ever make, and I am a fan of the grace of God. So let's just not let condemnation be a thing this morning, okay? Can we agree? Yeah. Okay, so let's look at this. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who has looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so a lot of times we get the teaching that lust is exactly the same as committing the act. And I would say that in our hearts, yeah, sure, we're guilty of sin. But anyone who's experienced the consequences of adultery knows that it is a far different thing to think about something than actually go do it. And so we understand that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He is exaggerating something here to make a point. Is there consequence eternally for sin? Yes, but all sin is equal at the foot of the cross. But are there, are there deep consequences to what our heart is doing beyond just the logistics of what we actually physically go and do? This is some of the point of his statement here. You see, one of the reasons why hyperbole was used in this culture is that the Jews were so black and white. They were so black and white in their thinking. And, you know, honestly, you see that with a lot of monotheistic religions where it, there's one God or one kind of doctrine that goes on. So there's not a lot of room for wiggle room. And so there's a lot of black and white thinking. And when Jesus brings out this statement, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who's lustful is guilty. He's saying it's not just the actions that get you in trouble. It's your heart. Stop being so black and white about I didn't do it or I did do it. Your heart is really the thing on trial here. 
And so the hyperbole is shaking them out of the stupor of the black and the white. And he's saying, your heart, let's look at your heart. Let's examine your heart. And so it is a shocking statement because so many of those Jews were very proud to say, I have not done it. Oh, really? Where's your heart? Hyperbole shook them from the, the black and white of their behavior into their heart, which is where God wants us to deal with him honestly. Amen? Okay, then he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Remember how I said that the literal practice of something is not always literally fulfilled and that the statement that the literal fulfillment would not achieve its desired goal? I have worked in sexual redemption ministry for years. I cannot tell you how many people have gotten rid of things that have caused them to stumble. I'm going to put a block on the internet. I'm going to get rid of my smartphone. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. Cable must go. The TV must go. Everything must go. It's like a fire sale. And the thing that doesn't go is their heart. And at the end of the day, their heart is where all this stuff needs to be dealt with. And so, yeah, you can cut off the TV. You can, I mean, there's, there's wisdom in not causing yourself to stumble. There's wisdom in knowing your weaknesses. But unless you deal with your heart, none of this matters. And like I said, I would be up here without a lot of appendages. That seemed weirder than it should have been coming out of my mouth. And I made it worse by saying that. So, <laughs> you know, if you don't want honest, you don't want me or this church. So, <laughs> but I want to tell you a little bit of a story about this because the, the reality is, is that when Jesus is communicating this stuff, what he's saying, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. What he's saying, what the emotional truth he's saying is, be drastic. In your passion to remove sin from your life. Do what you have to do to not fall into the pit because for crying out loud, he died to give us better than that. He died for more than that. More than just the constant struggle with sin. More than just the constant captivity of, of habitual sin. You guys, I struggled for years with sexual addiction. I was addicted to pornography. I was addicted to masturbation. Yeah, I said that on Sunday morning in church. I say it all over the country, so what? I said it here. Like Ryan said, you have to keep me. So, but I struggled with that stuff. And I remember the prison. And I remember the hopelessness. And I remember the, the absolute powerlessness that I felt in those years of struggling with that stuff. And I remember the day when I was looking at this stuff and I was thinking, well, I've gotten rid of, the comp I've gotten rid of this. I've done all these drastic things. And God was like, you're missing the point. Where's your heart? What are you going to do so that your heart is engaging with me? And it was interesting because I was sitting in this apartment all by myself, and I recognized if I don't drastically become passionate about becoming better than this and out of this, I'm going to keep in this prison for the rest of my life. And I've got to do something about this that is drastic. I've got to engage with this in a way that is passionate because Jesus was passionate for me. So what do, I, what do I do? And it was a really practical sort of situation. I was sitting in this apartment. I was in an apartment all by myself. I lived alone. And I knew if I stayed in that apartment, I was going to look at pornography, and I was going to fantasize, and I was going to masturbate, and I was going to experience all this because I wasn't going to go out and have sex with someone because that was too bad. I was going to, that was my struggle, and that was my prison. And so I sat there, and I said, what 
can I do, Lord? What drastic measure can I take? And the Holy Spirit said, go sit on the roof of your car. Because you can't do that out there. (sighs) They will arrest you, you know, and it's like, okay. And, you know, I I share this from a place of freedom, and I share this from a place where where God has done so much in my life. There's not the shame or the, 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 this, the, whatever you want to call it, that, I, that that moment really had for me because I was sitting on the roof of my car at 12.30 and at 1.30 and at 2.30 and at 3.30 and at 4.30 because I could not trust myself to walk into my apartment. And there's a lot of things that go through your head as you're sitting out there alone with the Holy Spirit in the dark on the hood of your car because you have cultivated a struggle where you can't trust yourself alone in your own house. And God was so gracious to me in those moments. He was so gracious to me, and yet it was so consequential to me of like, I have to work tomorrow. I have a 12-hour work day tomorrow. I can't go in and sleep, and I'm not going to sleep on the hood of my car. That's just weird. But I remember thinking like, this sucks. I'm cutting off, not my hand, I'm cutting out my mattress. I'm cutting out my night's sleep. And I remember 6.30, 7 o'clock came, and I had to just get in my car and go to work in my same clothing because I really was so addicted that I couldn't even go in to take a shower. I mean, that's really kind of very embarrassing to share, but again, I'm sharing from a place of freedom now. And so I went, it was a different kind of walk of shame, walking into my office with the same clothes. People know that the walk of, anyway. Thank you for the laughter, whoever. Angie, thank you. And I remember getting through that day, and I was exhausted, and I went home that night, and I remember I could not be trusted in my own apartment again. And I, (laughs) it's a humbling, drastic thing be exhausted and frustrated and humiliated and to sit on that freaking car again until 4.30 in the morning that time where I thought, I think I'm tired enough that if I go into the house and lay down, I'm going to fall asleep because I got nothing else I can do. And I did. I I got a couple hours of sleep, went back to work, and the next night it was probably about 2.30. And at that night, I said, you know what? All of that it's not worth this, you know, (laughs) I need to sleep, you know, and somehow the drastic nature of that broke that mystique of the sin, and somehow the power that it had over me was broken over that, it wasn't like it wasn't a struggle, but I no longer believed I couldn't do different, does that make sense, you know, when Jesus is saying, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, He is not saying to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. He's saying, how passionate do you want to get? How consequential are you going to be about recovering the life I died to give you? We have to take this seriously. Not because we're going to be legalists. Not because anyone has the right to go around and tell people what sin is the one they need to be passionate about. But because God is always confronting our hearts with the things that pull us away from the life he gave us to live. Now... This message is not about sexuality, so that you know. This is just the passage of scripture I picked. 
And if you do not struggle with any sexual things, <laughs> um, you're not off the hook. Because it's not just sexuality where we get tied up and where we get caught in the sin cycle and we're living less than what God died to have us live as. So here's the thing. Many of us have things in our life, relational sins, unforgiveness, judgments, places of uncomfortability that we don't want to go to, that we don't want to confront because they seem so difficult that literally it will take an impassioned act to go and confront that thing so that we can live differently than what we lived before. You know, we sang this morning that one, not one, not one drop, not one thing, that Christ, not one drop was wasted, not one thing was forgotten. Do not for a minute think that there aren't things in each of our lives that, that the Holy Spirit wants to put his finger on today that are keeping us from being the people he called us to be, he died to make us, and his heart wants to uncover in us. We were made for more. We were made for much more. And I know there are things in my own life that I'm preparing this, and I'm thinking, gosh, thank you, Lord, for the reminders that there's things in my own life too, all of us, every single one of us, that the Holy Spirit is dealing with us on. And if we will partner with him, he will uncover amazing things in our lives, freedom and life like there hasn't ever been before, if we will get on board. Now, let, let me say this. It is very important when we're talking about hyperbole to understand the difference between the principle and the application, okay? What I'm not saying to all of you is that you have to go sit on the roof of your car. You know, we talked about this before. I, I, I remember the message that Kim brought when she was talking about how she developed intimacy with God and she locked herself in a room for like, I don't know, a year. And <laughs> I love where she, I hope she's in here somewhere. <laughs> anyway, she said, she's not saying go do what I did, but, but what she's saying in that and what I'm saying in this is it's not what I did. It's not the application. It's the principle. So God will engage with you. He wants to engage with you. He wants to lead you into those passionate places and those actions that shake us out of the dull and out of the mundane and out of the familiar and out of the blur and bring us into that place of resurrection, supernatural life. He wants to do that. And the application of that is different for each of us. But the principle is the same. God is pursuing our hearts and he wants us to be passionate about him and about his life for us. Amen? So some of you here are struggling with issues of unforgiveness. Some of you here are struggling with issues of greed. Some of you here are struggling with issues of pride. Some of you here are struggling with everything. You know, I mean, no, no, sorry. My wife told me not to be as self-deprecating on the stage. I will not do that. Okay. That to say, if you will let him, he will lead you. If you will engage with him, he will lead you in this. What is the one thing you know that God is not letting you off the hook on? What is the one thing in your life that has been the more terrifying thing to confront? What is the one thing in your life, above all the other things, that we would rather choose something else to pursue in health than that one thing? How many of you have ever had the experience where you know what that thing is, but you start digging up other things you know quite aren't right because that seems easier than this one over here? <laughs> Just raise your hand so I'm not alone. You all know what I'm talking about. Can I say this? God is such an architect of redemption. Right. He knows the things. 
He knows the linchpin. He knows the cornerstone of struggle. He will bring us to the very thing that if we will be obedient in that, it will cause freedom in so many other places of our lives. So many other places that we'd had to go chase those things down individually or we could partner with the Holy Spirit and take out the big ugly thing and that will consequentially bring down a lot of others. What is the one thing? What is the thing today that you, if you were quieting your soul and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you, what is the thing that God would want to engage with you on and make you passionate about having his life for you not the thing that's entangling us. One more thing I want to say about this before I land the plane without too much more turbulence is that if we pursue something like this, um, we have to keep something in mind. God has never asked us to give something up without exchanging it. God is not a taking God. He's an exchanging God. And we sang about it this morning. He is exchanging old for new. If we think that we are going to go and attack something and remove it from our life, but do not understand that God wants to bring good and right and godly things in its place, we are going to frustrate ourselves to death. Because that thing, we might be able to unlodge it and push it out for a minute, but a vacuum does not stay empty. Jesus described it as far as spiritually speaking as if you cast a demon out, but you don't close up the house and clean up the house and fill up the house, that demon's going to go out with seven of his uglier friends and come back because a vacuum doesn't stay empty. And because God has never called us to be drained without filling us up. That is not God's heart. So if there's something in our lives that we are looking at that we know we need to be rid of, can we also pursue the Holy Spirit to say, what do I fill this with? If there is pride, let's fill it with humility. Practice humility. If there is sexual brokenness like there was for me, let's fill it with purity. Let's fill it with right relationships, not broken ones. Because we have a hunger for relationships. We're not getting out of here without them. So we better fill it with the right thing and not the wrong thing. If there's, if there's greed, then we better start practicing generosity. Because if we just try to stop being greedy, that thing will take back root again. Because we are not displacing it with the thing God has called us to be. And don't think for a minute that the Holy Spirit does not empower this very process when we partner with him. He is a good and a powerful God. He is a redeeming God. He gives us, takes the old, gives the new, takes the ashes, gives the beauty. He is the one that does it. But will we dare be passionate about pursuing that with him? We have become oftentimes very passive in our spirituality. We've become less responsible for the things, and I'm not, I'm not being a legalist when I say this. I'm being a pastor who is really sick and tired of watching the people I love struggle with things they don't have to. Can we get passionate about what God wants to do in our life, about what he's calling us to, and can we see him transform us? Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, you are a good and a faithful God. Lord, I thank you for my family here this morning. I thank you for each life. I thank you for the journey each life has been on. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every single one of us still has places in our life where we can be more like you. 
there's still places of victory to find in our lives. There's still places of, of redemption and transformation in our lives because you are continually making us more and more like you into your image, into your glory as we live. And so there's, we're never done until we are. And so, Lord, this morning I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here, lovingly, gently place on each of their hearts the very thing that you are inviting them to be compassionate about pursuing your life for them in exchange for this peace. Lord, we want to be shaken by, our, by your exaggeration. We want to be awakened by your passion. You are passionate for us. You are passionate for our lives. Lord, may we be woken to passion too. Lord, speak to your children and love us well. And give us the strength to walk step by step with you into these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.